Mindfulness Mode 405. So this is all to suggest that consciousness isn't tied to this one physical body. And that for me was a completely groundbreaking idea. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness here on today's Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Mindful Tribe, before I tell you about today's guest, I want to give you a chance to rev up your own level of mindfulness in a huge way. Back on episode 383, I interviewed my friend Keith McPherson. Well, he's a mindfulness and meditation teacher and a yoga guy. You can always go back to mindfulnessmode.com slash 383, and that'll take you right into the episode. Well, Keith McPherson, wow, he's amazing. He's created an outstanding online course called Making Sense of Mindfulness, and he's made it possible for you, Mindful Tribe, to get your hands on his course. I've studied through his course myself, and I'll tell you, it's without a doubt one of the best mindfulness courses out there it's it's personal it's thorough it's intensive and keith is a fantastic gentle teacher who teaches in the same spirit that i do the course is not free but it's a it's it's just worth every single penny in my opinion check it out at mindfulnessmode.com/msoo M, which stands for Making Sense of Mindfulness. He'll take you through the five principles of mindfulness practice with videos, guided audio exercises, and a workbook too. Like I said, I am really impressed with the extensive amount of material he's put together. It's, it's really quite incredible. So definitely check out mindfulnessmode.com slash M, the Making Sense of Mindfulness course. Now, on to today's guest. He's all about consciousness. And of course, that's a topic I'm totally intrigued with, especially since moving through some experiences lately where some people in my life have passed away, including my dad just, just after New Year's. I didn't know what to expect when I started reading my guest's book, An End to Upside Down Thinking, but I was soon completely immersed in his book to the point that I just couldn't put it down. And I'll tell you, I would recommend this book to anybody interested in the topic of consciousness. And, you know, with that, of course, you'll enjoy just sitting back, relaxing, and enjoying today's episode. I'm sure you will with the wonderful author, Mark Gober. Hey, Mindful Tribe, you are in for an amazing experience today because I have the author of a fantastic new book with me. The book is about consciousness. It's about awareness. It's about our inner... Well, I'm not even going to say anymore. I am here with Mark Gober. Hey, Mark, are you in mindfulness mode today? I am. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so excited. Mark Gober is an author whose worldview was turned upside down in late 2016 when he was exposed to some world-changing science that headed him in a different direction. He did some extensive research and then wrote this book, which is called An End to Upside Down Thinking. And I got to tell you, this book has just... Like, it's just opened up my mind tremendously. It's fantastic. And uh, 
there's a little bit more here that you'd like to know about Mark. He's a senior member of Sherpa Technology Group, which is a, for, a firm that advises businesses on mergers and acquisitions and strategy. He previously worked as an investment banking analyst in New York, and he's been quoted for his opinions on business and technology matters in Bloomberg Business Week and other places. And he's authored internationally published business articles. So, this is kind of uh, a different direction. He graduated magna cum laude from Princeton University, where he was captain of the tennis team. So let's get talking about this book. Tell me, what does, I always ask, what does mindfulness mean to you? And I'm, I'm directed to ask you what consciousness means to you, Mark. Can you talk about that to get us started here? Well, I think consciousness is something that is difficult to describe with language, because if it is what I now think it is, then it's something that is infinite and not within any bounds. So to use language is automatically limiting something that is not limited. But given that we do use language, the way I like to communicate consciousness is to say that it's our subjective inner experience. So when I say that I am speaking to you right now, that I is what I mean by consciousness. Our subjective inner experiences. Well, you talk in your book a lot about inner experiences, and uh, it's pretty fascinating. You begin the book talking about remote viewing. Can you tell us a little bit about that place where you started in the book? Yeah, so remote viewing is one of a number of phenomena that I discuss in the book, and it's all centered around recontextualizing consciousness. So the conventional view is that consciousness, as I defined it earlier, this kind of subjective awareness that we all have, that that consciousness is just a product of chemicals in our brain. And I show a number of independent areas which suggest that consciousness, A, is not localized to the brain, and B, is, is not even produced by it. So remote viewing is one example where people seem to have an ability to view things with their mind alone. So in other words, they're not seeing something with their eyes and yet they can draw it out on a piece of paper and show what they're seeing of something that's very far away from them. And the US government, I was shocked to learn, they ran a program for more than 20 years where they used remote viewers, in other words, psychic spies, to find distant objects and they were able to do that with great success. And some of the, the documents that I was able to show in the book are directly downloaded from the CIA's website, which say explicitly that remote viewing was used successfully and that remote viewing is real. Well, it was certainly fascinating reading this in your book. And this is one of the things is that in the book, you talk about so many things, but you back it up with evidence. And so many books are written where that is not the case. Was that tough finding evidence for so many of these, these stories and, and situations that you talk about? Surprisingly, it was not difficult. And my journey started with an exploration of evidence out of personal curiosity. I wasn't planning to write a book when I started researching. But what, what I was just amazed by was how much research there has, had already been in independent areas. I mean, remote viewing, there's just a chapter in my book on that topic. I could have written a whole book on remote viewing, and many people have. And so I was just stunned that there was so much research in all of these areas, and I felt compelled to put it together for people uh, because I, I realized that 
I didn't know about a lot of the research. And when I asked friends and family members about it, they had never heard of these things. So my goal was to put together what I thought was some of the strongest evidence in all of these different areas. Well, I love what you talked about uh, how the body seems to be able to predict the future before the mind does. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So this is another example where if we put consciousness in a new context, we say consciousness isn't just a product of the brain, but maybe consciousness is the fundamental basis of reality existing beyond all space and time. That would allow people in theory with their consciousness to access things that seem like they're physically distant. So that's like remote viewing, but also distant in time, meaning not just in the present moment. And that's this phenomenon known as precognition. The classic studies on precognition that I think are the strongest in terms of uh, replications and, and independent demonstrations of this are uh, reversals of a classic psychology experiment. And the classic psychology experiment shows a person a picture of something that we know will be arousing or a picture that isn't typically arousing. And what is found is that the person's physiology will unconsciously change after the person sees the picture. So if it's a picture of a mountain, you won't see a big spike in their skin, for example, in the electricity in their skin. But if you show them a violent image, they will have an unconscious response. So that is something that is known in psychology. It's like an unconscious physiological response to a stimulus. That's how people would say it. So that what these experimenters have done is said, well, let's reverse in time this traditional experiment. Let's measure the person's body before any picture is shown and before anyone knows what kind of picture will be shown. And I've, I've done these experiments before. I did one example at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. You're sitting in front of a computer screen and the computer screen just randomly shows different types of pictures. And you're sitting there hooked up to a machine. And in my case, they were measuring pupil dilation. In other cases, they'll measure skin response or heart response or the brain blood flow. And what happens is that a few seconds before the picture is randomly generated by the computer. And you know, again, you don't know if it's going to be an arousing image or a peaceful image. The body seems to respond ever so slightly in the direction consistent with the picture that's eventually shown. So how is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> this is a mind-boggling one. There was an article in the New York Times that talked about this study that was done by Dr. Daryl Bem from Cornell University because it's so controversial. It puts into question the basic arrow of uh, the direction of the arrow of time. Does time move from past to present to future? Does the past cause the future? Or is a future stimulus causing a present moment event in the body? So we have to, again, I think if, if we recontextualize consciousness as being beyond all space and time, it's almost like consciousness is able to reach forward to a very probable future. And our body is, is unconsciously responding to it. And that leads us to psychokinesis. That's fascinating, too. I mean, this is just fascinating. Yeah, psychokinesis is another one that would not be predicted by the standard model, that the brain just produces consciousness and consciousness doesn't affect the world at all. But if consciousness is the basis of the physical world, then at least conceptually we could, we could uh, say that maybe consciousness could affect the physical world because it's underlying it. And that's what the study of psychokinesis suggests as well. Psychokinesis is the ability for the mind to affect matter without touching anything. So it's like you will something to happen and then the physical world changes. There are studies that show a very, very slight effect. And many of the studies were run at Princeton University for nearly 30 years. It was a lab run by the former Dean of Engineering 
And interestingly, I, when I was at Princeton, I overlapped with this lab. It shut down in 2007, but I was there for some of the years that it was still going. And I didn't know it existed because I think it was so controversial that people didn't really talk about it. But uh, the studies on psychokinesis they ran, and by the way, they ran studies on remote viewing. They ran over 600 trials and also showed that it was a real thing. But with psychokinesis, they used machines called random number generators. So these are machines that will generate a zero or a one in a random fashion. And when you look at the string that's produced by this machine over a long period of time, you end up with something that approaches 50% ones and 50% zeros because it's random. So that no big deal there. Now this is the where it gets interesting. They ask people to put their mind to the experiment and say, I want you to try to mentally influence the machine to make it produce more ones than zeros. And the standard model would say nothing should happen because why would someone's mind affect a machine? But in these studies, it seems that there is a very, very slight but highly statistically significant effect where if a person is intending for the machine to do something, it will behave in that direction. And this, these are everyday people that are just at a distance mentally influencing a machine. Well, we in, in our world, we seem to want to think that consciousness is just not a thing. But in fact, consciousness really can survive physical death. You came to that conclusion, right? Yes. And that's another thing that would be predicted by this model, that consciousness isn't produced by the brain. If we view the brain as being more like an antenna receiver, like sort of like your television set, then that would explain why the brain has such a strong relationship with consciousness, because it's processing it, but it's not producing it. And if we view the body as, as being the the vehicle, then when the body dies, consciousness wouldn't die, at least conceptually. And I show a number of areas in the book which suggest that that idea is true. One that I think is really significant is the near-death experience. And I spent a lot of time talking about the phenomenon and different explanations for it. And the near-death experience occurs when people are typically in extreme physiological trauma. So imagine someone in cardiac arrest. Their heart stops, blood stops flowing to the brain. This is clinical death in many cases. And yet in certain studies, such as Dr. Pim Van Lommels, he's a cardiologist, he wrote a, a famous paper in the Lancet Medical Journal, a peer-reviewed medical journal that's, that's very well-known and respected. He found that of patients that he examined who had had cardiac arrest and were resuscitated, 18% of them experienced the near-death experience. And we would predict that it should be 0% under the conventional models because their brains were either extremely impaired or fully off. And yet people are describing lucid memories, logical thought processes that happened. They talk about hovering over their body in an out-of-body experience. And they describe things that happened in the room that are later verified by those in the room who didn't have the near-death experience. So that is not a hallucination. If a person's having a verified, it's known as a veridical out-of-body experience, during the time they should have been clinically dead or had no brain functioning. So what we're seeing here, and there are many other examples of this, is a consciousness that seems to be functioning independently of a functioning body. Well, one of the things you talked about was when we, when we approach death, sometimes we experience this incredible clarity. Even if our mind has been clouded for several weeks, then suddenly there can be a period of incredible clarity. Now, my father just passed away in uh, this month, January, and I spent a lot of time with him in the weeks up to his passing. And I noticed that 
just in the week before he passed away, there would be these periods of time where all this clarity would come through and he'd be telling me stories I had never heard before. And he was talking in a way that I had never heard him talk. It was almost like he was taking on a different personality. Tell us about this. Hmm. Well, first of all, I'm sorry to hear that you that you went through that. But what, what you describe is something that many people describe, especially caregivers, because they see people that are... are are transitioning from this life into something else is now how I see it. But what people often describe is a this period of lucidity that is not predicted by the conventional models of the brain. And I think the most striking cases are ones where the person has had Alzheimer's for a long time. So right. they have had no, uh, they haven't had normal functioning memory for a while. And all of a sudden they'll snap into lucidity and they're speaking as if nothing happened. And so this is challenging the conventional view of the brain because this moment of clarity seems to be happening around a time when a person's brain is either like is, is extremely impaired. So something is happening where an impaired brain is, an, is allowed to have um, a clear consciousness. It's not well understood, but I think it's another one of these examples that challenges the conventional model of the brain and really does need to be accounted for because it happens so often. Right. Well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm interested in consciousness and cremation because, you know, there's a whole thought uh, out there about, you know, cremation can uh, certainly end some aspects of consciousness. What are your thoughts on that? Does consciousness have anything to do with whether we are cremated or not? Hmm. I don't think it is known based on the research that I've seen because what is not well understood is the relationship between the brain and consciousness. So let's say that this idea I'm talking about is correct, that the brain is like an antenna receiver or like a filtering mechanism where there's some much broader consciousness out there and the brain sort of actually clouds our perception. It limits what we perceive. And when we have a near-death experience or some kind of illness, it unlocks the filter or a psychedelic and we're able to perceive more actually. But the question still is, well, how is the brain filtering consciousness or how is it uh, receiving it or transmitting it? What is the mechanism there? And we don't understand that. So I, I don't know the answer because we don't know if, if the brain is still interacting with consciousness even when the body stops functioning. Um, so I don't know is the short answer. Right. Well, you know, I think this is such a groundbreaking book because you've presented such a strong case. And uh, the book is called An End to Upside-Down Thinking, and the subtitle is Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. So what are the implications for everyday life? Maybe you can share that with us. There are a number of implications. So one is this notion of psychic abilities, whether it's precognition or remote viewing or telepathy. These effects seem to be real, psychokinesis, and they seem to be real in an everyday person, even though the effects are very small. And in some cases, like at the US government, they used what I'll call the Michael Jordans of psychic abilities, people that are extreme outliers. If you look at a normal distribution, those are the, the extreme performers. But on the other end of the distribution, it seems like everyone can dribble a basketball. In other words, everyone has statistical abilities. So that's, for me, was totally groundbreaking to realize that there are these innate abilities that we have, even if they're subtle, that I didn't know about and they're not taught by science. So I would say that's one implication. Another huge one for me is this notion of survival of bodily death. I mean, if consciousness isn't tied to the body, then when the body dies, consciousness doesn't die. We see that with the near-death experience. 
There are other examples. I, I refer to the University of Virginia studies. Um, more than 50 years of research on children, usually between the ages of two and five years old, who are spontaneously speaking of a life that is not theirs. So 2,500 plus cases of these kids describing things that are sometimes verified by medical records or historical records. And sometimes the children have birthmarks or physical deformities uh, that match this described previous life where they have preferences for things that don't make sense or things they've never been exposed to. So this is all to suggest that consciousness isn't tied to this one physical body. And that for me was a completely groundbreaking idea. Oh, me too. Me too. I, I couldn't believe it. Like some of those children actually speak foreign languages that they've never been exposed to in this life. Like how can this be explained? <laughs> yeah, it's a rare instance, but it's known as xenoglossy, X-E-N-O, glossy, where children spontaneously begin speaking a language they were never taught. So there seems to be something going on where there is a transmission of consciousness that's not just tied to this body. And when once you start to buy into that and internalize it, it took me a while to get there. But then you start to really rethink your own identity. Am I a body that has a consciousness or awareness, which is what I would have said is the case? That means my identity is my body. Or am I a consciousness first and foremost? That's my identity. And I'm just experiencing the physical world through the vehicle of a body. And that changes everything about who and what we are. That's true. It certainly does. It certainly does. I want to go back to the bio when I mentioned that in 2016, your worldview was turned upside down. Exactly what happened? Where, tell us what happened that you had this complete transition. Well, even before then, I had always asked big questions. When I was a student at Princeton, I wanted to major in astrophysics for a period of time. I ended up not doing it because I was on the tennis team and was too busy with that, and it would have been hard to switch majors. But I think the interest in existence was there. I wanted to understand the universe. I wasn't thinking about consciousness then. And I'd always ask questions about meaning, and I would always, until around 2016, I would come to the same conclusion. There is no meaning in life because when our body dies, our consciousness dies, and therefore we have no memories and no ability to feel or have emotions. So if I want to try to have meaning in the things that happen in my life, I'm just rationalizing. Ultimately, it doesn't matter for me and it doesn't matter for everyone. And that was how I thought because that's what I thought science suggested. So that I, I just thought that was a logical conclusion uh, based on this theory of the brain, which I didn't even know was a theory. I thought it was like proven that the brain produces consciousness. That went into question for me for the first time in late 2016, when I was listening to podcasts. And initially the show was Extreme Health Radio, which interestingly, they interviewed me a few days ago, which was really fun because that's where I first got exposed to these topics. I heard a woman on the show who talked about her own psychic abilities. And again, this was a health show. So I wasn't trying to, to learn about psychic abilities or consciousness, but this woman talked about seeing things as a child that were like entities that weren't physical. She talked about working with energies for health and she said she actually practiced these things for clients. At the end of that interview, the woman's name is Laura Powers, who is a practicing psychic and author. She mentioned her own podcast called Healing Powers. So I listened to her podcast for a few weeks. I listened to all the episodes back to 2011. And I got to the point where I heard so many people independently describe this alternative picture of reality that I couldn't reconcile it with my old worldview. So I had this issue where I was presented with a bunch of new evidence, and yet I had a worldview that didn't line up with it. And I, it was very disorienting because I didn't know what to do with that information. I started to research it for myself. And I, when I researched, I just found more and more. 
And it was a it was a very tough period because I had to rethink my whole worldview. And it just led me to want to research more and more until I finally decided to write a book about it. Well, you certainly have a, a tremendous passion for it. That comes across as I talk with you, Mark. That's for sure. Well, you know, why is there so much fear out there about this? Hmm. I still wonder that myself. I think there are a number of reasons. One, I think, is kind of an egocentric perspective that certain people might have where if you're a PhD and you're 70 years old and you've been practicing a certain way of thinking in science and a new paradigm comes along that might question your entire career, that that's difficult and understandably so. So I think there's natural resistance to a new paradigm because that would mean a lot of people would have to shift their worldviews and shift what the things they've been saying uh, publicly. For me, it was difficult and I'm not even a scientist who's been practicing for a long time. I'm just an, an average everyday person and it was very hard for me to shift my worldview. So I think there's a natural resistance to it there. I've heard other ideas, which is that these ideas of consciousness actually empower us and that places a greater sense of responsibility on our actions and accountability. So the near-death experience, I, I kind of glossed over what happens there, but one thing that happens is the life review where people in this altered state of consciousness review their whole life in a flash and they're judging themselves for how they acted towards others. Sometimes they experience the events through the eyes of those that they affected. So it's like we're the same consciousness switching lenses in this alternative dimension or something. But what, what happens is that people have a great sense of accountability for how they acted during their life and they're judging themselves. So that can be a scary thing for people to say, wait a second, I'm accountable for what I'm doing in my life. It might be easier to say, there's one life, that's it, and nothing matters. Yeah, I saw that in my own father. I really did. And, and it, it's pretty eye-opening, you know, when you experience that firsthand with a family member like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the feedback from your book. Have you received any negative repercussions as a result of publishing this book? Well, as of the date of this recording, the, the uh, book has been out for about three months. So it's still pretty new. Most of the feedback I've been getting so far has been positive. And I would say most of the people in podcasts, radio shows, TV shows that have interviewed me are more open. So it's probably a bit of sure. a biased sample. Every now and then I'll look at comments on YouTube or on Amazon and I'll see a few of people that just completely reject what I'm talking about. And they'll, even some people, I, I've, I've read people say that they've just put down the book after reading a few pages because they just don't buy it, which is ironic because that's what my book is about, is, is about how I think our, our community, whether it's scientifically or otherwise, is not looking in the telescope, so to speak. Sort of like with Galileo, when he had all of his evidence in the telescope, which suggested that the earth is not the center of the solar system, the clergyman didn't want to look in the telescope. And I think that's what happens with some scientists and then just everyday people who are resistant to these ideas. Well, and I love uh, the fact that I mentioned this earlier, that so much of your book is based on evidence. It's based on science. And that's what makes it just so powerful because you're not just, you just didn't start writing and say, well, this is what I think. This is what I believe. This is my idea. These are my thoughts. You base this whole book on science and that's what sets it apart. So I think, I think that's incredible. And I think that there must be well, I'm sure tremendous positive feedback as a result of that fact. 
Thank you. I have received positive feedback from that. And that was the standard that I held myself to. If I was going to put my name on a book like this to challenge some very, very smart people. I mean, Neil deGrasse Tyson, a brilliant physicist who has done such a good job of bringing astrophysics to the mainstream. He has said he's not, he, he wonders whether there's no such thing as consciousness at all. And even Stephen Hawking, famous physicist, brilliant yes. physicist. He said, I get uneasy when people, especially theoretical physicists, talk about consciousness. This is the level of, of the intellect that I'm, and others are challenging. There are many others too that say that these things are not real. So I wouldn't have been able to do that unless I felt that there was such strong evidence in independent areas. And my reasoning is if, if we find that even one of these things is true, then it dramatically challenges the conventional view of consciousness and the brain. And so my, my thinking is that it's highly probable that at least one of these things is real, probably many, if not all. And that is really going to cause us to shift our paradigms. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, one of the things you mentioned in your book is about Elon Musk and one of the projects he's working on, the creation of a brain-computer interface uh, called Neuralink. And I think that has some uh, uh, a relationship to consciousness as well. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Elon Musk, he hasn't spoken too much about the company, but he sounds like he's trying to build a wizard hat for the brain, where it's almost like enhancing our abilities by using an electronic device. So learning how the brain works and then just enhancing it using something external. What I wonder, based on the little bits and pieces I've seen about it, is whether he and his scientists are viewing the brain as the producer of consciousness or if they're viewing the brain as being like this receiver or filter or processor. And it, it seems like they're, they're taking the conventional view of the brain, which is that the brain produces consciousness. There's no such thing as psychic abilities, no such thing as survival of bodily death. The reason I mentioned in my book is that Elon Musk is such a brilliant guy with so many resources. If he recontextualized the brain to say, wait a second, maybe we all have these innate psychic abilities that are just subtle. What if we figured out how the brain works with them and we used an electronic device, this Neuralink wizard hat, to enhance our abilities. That would bring a whole new element to what he's doing. Yes, it certainly would. That's for sure. So um, you've put all this together in this book. Did anybody urge you not to do this or not to publish this before <laughs> it went to press? That's a great question. So the process for me of writing the book... Like I said, I started with research. I was researching for a year with no plans of writing the book. And then in, in the summer of 2017, I said, I'm going to put this on paper and write a book. Even though I'm not an author, I never had planned on writing any kind of book or being public. And I ended up writing the book very quickly. So I wrote the majority of it, at least a draft of it, over the 4th of July weekend in 2017, which was a long weekend. So I just put my research on paper, finished it over the next few weekends, and I had a draft manuscript. At that point, I really wanted to just publish it and get it out. Um, and I was advised by people that it would be smart to try to talk to scientists, uh, get a publisher. So I ended up going through that process. And I would say the feedback was very positive from many scientists who have endorsed the book. Um, so people from credible institutions like the University of Virginia, Irvin Laszlo, who's a Nobel Peace Prize nominee. So that was positive to get that kind of feedback from people. Um, but I, there were a few people that I know that I, I shared bits and pieces with who were worried for me, like as friends, he said, who probably were more on the skeptical side, even with all the evidence. 
and we're kind of like, Mark, I'm worried that people are going to think you're crazy. Um, I would say that's the minority. Most people that were looking at it, whether it was scientists or friends and family members, it was overwhelmingly positive. Well, that's great because it is a, a, a book that people need to read. It needs to be out there. As we move toward the end of the interview, I want to ask you, Mark, five quick answer questions, if that's okay. The first one is this. Who is one person who has truly, truly inspired you or affected your beliefs on consciousness and mindfulness? I would say two people. One is Dr. Dean Radin, who's run many of the studies on telepathy and psychic abilities for over 40 years. So I think the rigor of his work was really influential for me, and I've gotten to know him personally, and he was kind enough to endorse my book. So I would say on the scientific side, Dean Radin. On the more philosophical side, I would say Dr. David Hawkins, who was a practicing psychiatrist who basically became an enlightened sage. He reached very high states of consciousness, similar to what people describe in a near-death experience or other things, but he achieved it through meditation, sort of like what many of the yogis talk about. And he has such a unique perspective on life and the ego and mindfulness coming from the standpoint of not only an enlightened sage or something like it, but also from the standpoint of a psychiatrist. So he wrote a book, for example, called Letting Go, which goes through all of the human emotions and how we can think about them from the standpoint of consciousness and kind of surrender and let go of many of the things that hold us back. Wow. Uh, Your emotions. Now, with all of this study and all of the work that you've done with this, have you noticed that there's been a change? And if so, how have your own personal emotions been affected? Hmm. I would say, yes, they have. I probably am a bit more easygoing than I used to be because I view now this life as just being almost like a temporary stop of consciousness. So that if that's true, I think I still take things seriously, but there is this fallback of understanding there's a much bigger picture going on beyond whatever small problems I have on a daily basis. So I, help, I think it's really helped me rethink things that might have stressed me out or caused anxiety. Well, let's talk about breathing. Some people have described how breathing can help make you feel more alive or change your sense of consciousness. What are your comments on breathing and how has breathing changed for you? Mm. Um, I'm much more open now to the effects of breathing, especially after seeing things like um, holotropic breath work, which is basically a way of inducing a psychedelic state. I haven't experienced it, but it's, it's often talked about. Um, also, the Wim Hof method. He yes, I practice who, that. Okay, yes, I've done that as well. And that's something where you, you clearly, I think everyone who does it, experiences an altered state of consciousness by over-oxygenating the brain, effectively. You breathe heavily in and then you let the breath go. So you end up netting in more oxygen than you're letting out. And when you do that for a long time and then hold your breath, like he suggests, it's almost like a state of euphoria just from breathing. Yes, it is. And it definitely changes your state and especially the the ice immersions, you know, they have a great effect also. And uh, if you could recommend a book other than your own, which is an end to upside down thinking, what book would you recommend that's kind of related to this whole topic of consciousness? I would say the book that I, I mentioned previously called Letting Go. Right. And that's by Dr. David Hawkins. It's more about emotions and how we can let go of things. So whereas many of the books I was reading were about the science, I have also spent a lot of time personally understanding or trying to integrate the implications. And I think that's what David Hawkins' books and other people's books get more into. It's sort of, well, yeah, it's, it's a foregone conclusion already that the brain doesn't produce consciousness and that our identity is consciousness. 
then so what? How do we live? How do we rethink emotions? And that's what books like Letting Go start to get into. And I know on my podcast, talking to so many hundreds of people, that is what it all boils down to. Well, then how do we let go? So that's that's a very powerful book. And uh, is there an app of any kind that you ever recommend to people to help them with their sense of consciousness? Hmm. I think Headspace is really good for someone who's just getting started. It's very basic and you can do short meditations, you can do longer meditations. So that's that's a that's one that I typically recommend if people ask. Well, we can all jump on and get this book an end to upside down thinking and it will change the way you think about about the world, about consciousness, about you and your relationship with others. How can we connect with you, Mark? My website is one way, and it's just my name, markgober.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R. I'm also on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, I, I have a podcast that will be coming out of my own at some point in 2019. I've already recorded nearly 50 interviews with many of the scientists that I talk about in my book and um, don't know the, the name or the release date yet, but I will be announcing it through my mailing list, which is available on my website and also on social media. So markgober.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. Get yourself over there, subscribe to the newsletter and so that you can get on the mailing list. And then when, when, your, <laughs> when your podcast comes out, that is going to be incredibly powerful, Mark. I can't wait. Thank you. Yeah, it'll be yeah. fun. And I, I'm doing this in an effort to expose people to the, the same information that had a transformative effect on me. And I think a podcast is one way to do it. A book is another way. For me and my personal journey, I used both. So I'm really hoping this is helpful to people. Yeah, I think it definitely is. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep Mindfulness Mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.